following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So we are starting this uh, series now in the season of Advent. Uh, We're going to do a four-week series leading up to Christmas over these four Sundays in December called The Coming King, and we're going to look at the first two chapters of Matthew's Gospel, uh, the Gospel of Matthew, just the first two chapters. We won't go any further than that. We're going to spend a lot of time next year in the Gospel of John, but for, for Advent season, we're just going to work through the first two chapters of Matthew, and Matthew gives us one of the two accounts, really, in the, in the New Testament of the birth of Jesus, the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, leading up to it, flowing on from it. And he gives us this way of discovering uh, not just the story of the nativity, but the significance of Jesus, and these wonderful insights as to who Jesus was uh, as Messiah and Lord, King, Savior, all these titles that maybe we're used to thinking of Jesus having, but don't necessarily understand the depth, the full depth of the significance of what's being said when we call Jesus the King or the Messiah, Lord, Christ, those things. And Matthew starts to bring those to the surface in his telling of the story of Jesus. And so... We're going to look through uh, Matthew's Gospel, and so today we'll start right at the beginning of Matthew, chapter 1. And uh, it's interesting, when you get to the beginning of Matthew, the beginning of the New Testament, it's just after that blank page between your Old Testament and the New Testament, you get to Matthew, and you sort of expect him to launch straight into the story. You expect to see a story, read a story about Jesus and Mary and Joseph and shepherds and wise men and and cows and donkeys. You know, you sort of think that's the first thing we're going to hit. But it's not. You get a bit of a rude shock when you start Matthew. The first thing you get is a family tree. The first thing you get, he doesn't really start with a punchy opening, does he? It's not sort of a, a hook to drag you in. What you get is a long list of names. It's a genealogy. Our favorite bit of scripture, isn't it? The favorite bits in Scripture, there's quite a few of them in the Bible. You've probably bumped into one or two, and we tend to just yawn when we get to them and move on. This, you know, so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so begets so-and-so. They just seem so meaningless and tedious and boring. And I've got no natural interest in family trees, to be honest. I, I occasionally get asked, you know, people say, are you related to the Muns and such and such a place? And I, I don't know. I've got no idea if I am or not. I assume if you go back far enough to Adam, there's probably some connection there, but I, I've never had a real interest in looking into it, so there's nothing, there was nothing kind of pulling me towards this, although I, I've kind of always had this slightly twisted desire to preach on a genealogy in Scripture just for the sheer challenge of it, uh, and so I get my wish today. I, I have all my dreams come true, but um, it won't surprise you to know that as I've delved into this genealogy, I've actually gotten quite excited quite excited about what's here because I think, far from being just a dreary old list of names, Matthew's doing something really interesting here. And there's some incredible insights as to who Jesus is that sets the scene, not just for Matthew's gospel, but for the whole of the unfolding story of Jesus, the Messiah. So, anybody want to read this? Take us (laughs) for a chocolate fish. Okay. Well, we won't read all of it, but let's just start, before you get to the genealogy itself, in, in verse 2. Matthew starts with this opening sentence, which kind of sets the scene for his, his genealogy. He says in verse 1, This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, 
Here's something amazing. The first two words in this gospel, in Greek, the original language it was written in, are these. Biblos Geneseos. Now that means literally, book of Genesis. Isn't that awesome? Matthew starts his gospel with the words, book of Genesis. Isn't the Bible amazing? You get the first book in the Bible called the book of Genesis, and then the first book in the New Testament starts with the words, book of Genesis. That's where you get the translation, the genealogy, or some, some of your translations might say the book of origins, but literally it says the book of Genesis. I think that's fantastic. Matthew's giving us these tantalizing hints that history is beginning again. The world, in a sense, is rebooting. Creation is starting again. This is creation 2.0. It's all taking off again. And now it is wonderfully reconfigured around this person, Jesus of Nazareth, who is bringing about a brand new start for humanity and all creation. This is a new genesis for the world. So I thought that was amazing. This is the genesis or this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Some of your translations there will say Jesus Christ. It's the same word in Greek, Christ and Messiah, come from the same Greek word, Christos, and it literally just means anointed one. And we tend to think when we hear the word Christ, we tend to think of it being a very divine sort of title, a title that means Jesus is the Son of God or that he's equal with God, and of course he is, but that's not what the title Christ means. Christ, or the anointed one, was primarily a word that was used in the Old Testament for kings. The equivalent word was used for kings. Kings who were anointed or set apart by God for the task of ruling over the kingdom of Israel. And so you will, you'll read in the Old Testament of people like Saul and David and Solomon being anointed by God. And you'll read of them being called the anointed one. David himself called Saul at one time. God's anointed one. Now, if you're reading that in the Greek Old Testament, as Matthew was, which we call the Septuagint, it would literally say the Lord's Christ. And you have people like David, Saul, and Solomon referred to as the Lord's Christ or the Christ of God. So obviously it's not saying that they are the Son of God or that they are divine and co-equal with God. It's saying they are God's anointed and appointed representative to establish his kingdom on earth. This is God's authorized person to oversee his kingdom, the Christ, the anointed one of God. So the simplest way of thinking about the word Christ or Messiah, when you hear it, when you see this phrase, Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ, just think King Jesus. In the same way that you would think King David, King Solomon, King Saul, King Jesus. That's what Christ means and that's how the Jewish mind would hear it. Jesus is God's King who's come to establish God's kingdom. So, Book of Genesis, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the King, and then the son of David. Matthew is really intentional about connecting Jesus to David. He wants us to understand from the outset that Jesus stands in the line of David, and that's going to be increasingly important as we go along. Jesus is the son of David, and he's the son of Abraham. And here, Matthew zooms out, in a sense, and gives us the big picture view that Jesus stands in the whole sweep of Israel's story. 
that he is a Jew, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, he's a child of Abraham, he's part of the people of Israel, the people of God. And I think this is incredibly important that when we talk about Jesus and we contemplate Christmas, that we see Jesus as coming as part of a story that's ongoing. You know, sometimes we talk about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and we jump straight from, you're a sinner, to Jesus came to die for your sins. And effectively what we've done there is we've jumped from Genesis 3 to Matthew 1 with nothing in between. And I think it does a disservice to the gospel when we do that because Jesus has not dropped out of heaven on some random day to some random people at some random time. He has come in the flow of a story. And he's come as the great culmination of Israel's story. The story that began not with Jesus but with Abraham and Sarah. The calling of the Jewish parents and the line of promise that would come and eventually end with Jesus. So he brings to fulfillment the whole story of the people of God up to this point and then embodies it and carries it on. So when you, when you see the nativity sets and you think about Jesus there in the manger, think of the whole story that stands behind him. The story down through, as we've talked through Judges this year, all the, the movements, the ebb and flow of Israel's story that all now coalesce around this person, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And that's Matthew's intro. He set us up with some categories to think about Jesus, and I know you're all itching to get into the genealogy itself. So in verse 2 he starts. Now I won't read all the names, but... The, the way that Matthew has arranged this genealogy is that he's done it in three sections. And he tells us at the end what he's done. In verse 17, he says, there were, four, there, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. So Matthew's got these nice three sections, and each of the three have 14 names. It all seems quite nice and tidy, doesn't it? Except it's not. Because you only need to count up the names to realize there's something strange going on here. There's not 14 lists of names in each, uh, 14 names in each list at all. The last list's only got 13. If you don't count people twice, the last list has only got 13. From the exile, uh, return from exile down to Jesus, there's only 13 names. And so what's Matthew doing? Is he just a bad mathematician? Is he a poor historian? Or is there something else going on here? Why is Matthew so concerned to create these lists that add up to 14? There's times here where he's skipped over entire generations. There's one point where he's just missed three generations out completely. And he's jumped from one guy to the next guy as if it's his son, when in fact, if you go back to the Old Testament and look at these names, he's missed three whole generations. So sometimes people don't like to talk about this stuff because it's a bit uncomfortable and it makes you start to question the authority of the Bible. But... We might as well get this out in the open, right? I mean, it doesn't take too much work to uncover these things, and so we need to be able to provide some answers. Now, I think part of the answer comes from comparing Matthew's genealogy with Luke's genealogy. You'd be pleased to know today you get two genealogies for the price of one. Matthew and Luke, because Luke, in his gospel, also has this family tree of Jesus. Now, I've put these up side by side here so that you can see what's going on. You don't need to look at or, or see all of the specific names. But just look at the colors, because the yellow ones represent the names that Matthew and Luke have in common in their lists. And the white names are the names that are different. There's a lot of names in those two lists that are different. 
And basically what happens is that Matthew and Luke both follow the genealogy identically down to David. It's identical down to that point. And then look what happens. Matthew takes the line through Solomon, through David's son Solomon. And Luke takes the line through David's son Nathan. And away they go. They diverge at that point. And they only then have two names in common all the way down to Joseph. And most shockingly, I thought, is that when you look at that list, it looks like Joseph's got two dads. Doesn't it? And Matthew, his dad's name is Jacob. But in Luke, his dad's name is Heli. What's going on here? This is, this is bizarre. Now, there's a couple of theories on this and how to reconcile all of this together. One is that Matthew is going through Joseph's genealogy, whereas Luke is going through Mary's genealogy. Now, that's quite plausible. The only thing there is that you'd have to then say when Luke gets down to Heli and Joseph, he's really saying that Joseph is Heli's son-in-law, not son because he'd be going through Mary's lineage. But it's still plausible that that's what's happening, is you're actually getting two genealogies of both Jesus' parents, a lineage of Joseph and a lineage of Mary, and a lot of people hold that view. But there's another option, one that I think is slightly more likely, and that is that Luke is giving us a biological ancestry of Jesus, his natural parentage, and Matthew is giving us a royal lineage through the kings. Now, that opens up some interesting possibilities. You didn't know that genealogies could be this much fun, did you? But Matthew, when you get to David, what does Matthew do? He goes through the kings. He goes through Solomon, and on he goes. Matthew's concerned to show us the different kings of Israel, whereas Luke doesn't. He goes through another son, the son who wasn't king, Nathan. So Matthew's going through this royal line. Now, the trick is then you get to the end of the monarchy and Matthew keeps going with all these other names, even when Israel didn't have kings. But the theory is that even after Israel returned from exile and Zerubbabel was governor, that there was still a list of the royal lineage somewhere in Israel that scholars still recorded from within the Jewish community the royal succession to the throne within Israel. Even though those people might not have known about it, even though it might have been an archive somewhere stored away, there was still recorded by someone the succession to the throne all the way down. And Matthew somehow had access to that record, which raises the interesting idea that Joseph stood in the royal lineage of Israel, even though he wouldn't have known it, even though he was a very poor man without any real means, even though the monarchy wasn't functioning at all, that in some sense, Joseph was part of that royal lineage, and it then carried down to Jesus. Now, this is just a possibility, but I think it's probably the more likely of the two. And it reveals what Matthew's real agenda is here, to show that Jesus is the king. That's what Matthew's all about. He wants you to know, whichever of those theories you adopt, or if, if you've got your own third crazy one, that's fine, but whatever, Matthew's point is that Jesus is the king. He's the king of Israel. And I think that's what's happening even with Matthew's 14s, why he's so concerned to get these 14s lining up. If you were with our series last year in Revelation, you know that in the Bible, seven is a very important number. It means completion. It means perfection. It means fulfillment. Matthew here is using double sevens. Three times double seven. What's he saying? Jesus is the perfect king, the full 
embodiment of what a king was always supposed to be, the true king, the rightful king. And I think Matthew is looking back to this promise that God made to David. This promise, let me read it to you, back in 2 Samuel 7, when God appeared to David and said to him, when your, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, in, in some sense, I think that God was talking about David's immediate son, Solomon, because he goes on to say, when he does wrong, I'm going to punish him. So clearly, he's not just talking about Jesus. But in the beauty of biblical prophecy, we have what's called a double fulfillment, which is that God there was talking about Solomon, but more than Solomon. David's son and yet a greater son who would come, the true son, a few generations down the track, who would come as the true son of David and sit on the, on the royal throne and in a sense revive the monarchy of Israel and be the true heir to the throne of God's people. And that person is Jesus. So I think that far from giving us a dreary and dry list of names just for the sake of it, that Matthew starts his gospel with this genealogy for the very reason that he's looking back to that promise God made to David, that a son will sit on your throne and I'll establish his kingdom forever. And Matthew is saying, behold your king, Israel. Behold your king. Here he is. He's come. And I can prove it by tracing the royal lineage all the way through the monarchy all the way through the return from exile, all the way down to Jesus. Here is your king. I think Matthew is, in a sense, giving us a wink and saying, the royal line has been restored. The throne is here, and the heir to the dynasty of Israel has arrived. It's Jesus of Nazareth. It's this baby born in a manger. But that's what we celebrate at Christmas, right? When we look at Jesus in these nativity sets, in, the, in, the, in these manger scenes, we don't just see a helpless little baby. We see the coming king. We see the heir to the throne of Israel, God's rightful king, who has been anointed and appointed to establish the reign and rule of God upon the earth, and his kingdom will know no end. That's what we're celebrating, isn't it? Or else what are we doing? This is Jesus the king who has come, the king of all. When we sing, hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, it's a big declaration. It's not a little thing. It's a huge cosmic claim that Jesus is the king. King of me, king of you, king of the universe. We're not just saying that Jesus is the king of my heart. We're not just saying he's the king of my own little world here. We're saying he's the king of all. Emperor Nero didn't throw Christians to the lions because they claimed that Jesus was the king of their heart. He threw Christians to the lions because they claimed Jesus is the one true king, the world's rightful ruler, before whom one day every king, every ruler, every authority, every power will bow, including you, Caesar. And that didn't go down too well in the first century. And it won't go down too well today sometimes. But that's what we're saying. When we declare Jesus is the king, when you take those words on your lips, Jesus Christ, Jesus the king, that's what you're saying. He is my king and he is your king, but he is the world's true and rightful ruler, the king of Israel, the king of all. That's what we're saying. 
And if you have not yet submitted your life to Jesus as King, I want to encourage you and urge you to do that today, this Advent season. You don't make Jesus King. He's already King, whether or not you submit to him. But there is no more important decision than you bringing your life into submission to the world's one true rightful ruler, bowing the knee before him and acknowledging his kingship, his rulership over all and handing the reins of your life over to him. No more important decision that you could make today than to acknowledge and submit to Jesus as your king, as your leader, as your rightful Lord. Okay, let's come back to this genealogy one more time. I want to point one more thing out here. As you look down the first part of this genealogy, you notice four women in this list. Other than Mary, four women. You have uh, Tamar, you have Rahab, you have Ruth, and you have the wife of Uriah, who was Bathsheba. When you start to look at the lives of these women, it's remarkable. I mean, it's remarkable anyway that women are included in a genealogy, to be honest, in a heavily patriarchal culture. But here they are. And you have Tamar, the uh, daughter-in-law of Judah, who disguised herself as a prostitute so she could sleep with her father-in-law. You have Rahab, an actual prostitute from the city of Jericho, the city that represented the enemies of God. You've got Ruth, you've got Bathsheba, all four of them probably non-Israelites. Isn't that incredible? In the royal lineage of Israel, you've got four outsiders, four women, two of whom are morally questionable, all of whom quite possibly were outside of the covenant people of God, and yet here they are in the royal line of kings leading down to Jesus. I think Matthew is hinting here at what kind of king Jesus is going to be. That yes, he's the king of Israel, and yes, he's come for the people of Israel, and yet his kingdom is open to all. His kingdom is open to the nations, to those far off, as Paul says, as well as those who are near, to those who are not, were not the covenant people, as well as those who are, Jews as well as Gentiles, Israelites and non-Israelites, all of us now welcomed into the kingdom. It's open to every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And it's a kingdom available to those from every rung of the social ladder, not just those of power and means and resource and wealth within society, but also the outcasts and the untouchables and the lowest on the socioeconomic ladder. And it's a kingdom not only for the virtuous, but for sinners. It's a kingdom for broken people. Well, that's what I love about the appearance of these four women in this genealogy. It's a kingdom for broken people, outsiders, unlikely people, not just those who have got their lives together, not just those who are, quote, righteous, but those who are sinners, both those who know they're sinners and those who don't know they're sinners, those whose lives are messed up, stuffed up, and screwed up, who are far from God. Jesus is the king for us. And he invites all of us to his table. He's a gracious king. He's a benevolent king who reaches down and lifts up those who are lost, who are last, and who are least, and welcomes them into his kingdom. Several hundred years before Jesus came, there was a guy living in Israel called Mephibosheth. 
It's a bit of a hard name to pronounce. It's not on our name list. Um, but he was, he, he was lame in both feet, Mephibosheth. And he'd also lost his father, Jonathan. Jonathan, his, his dad, was one of David's closest friends, King David. But because he was disabled and because he was fatherless, Mephibosheth would really have occupied the lowest ladder, lowest rung on the ladder of the social hierarchy within Israel. And one day he gets summoned to the king. And David says to him, Mephibosheth, I want to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And Mephibosheth replies to David and says, who am, who am I? that you would notice a dead dog like me. That's what he says, a dead dog like me. But David says, I'm going to restore the land that your family owned, and I want to invite you, Mephibosheth, every day to sit at my table as one of my sons. And he does. That passage ends by saying, and Mephibosheth ate at the king's table each day as one of his sons. That, I think was the pinnacle of Israel's monarchy. It was the pinnacle of David's kingship when he showed what a real king in Israel was like. And I think when Jesus is called the son of David and the king of Israel, that he's the king in that true sense, that he's the king for all, and he's the king that reaches down and lifts up the broken and the lame and the hurting. Because we are all Mephibosheth, aren't we? We're all disabled in some way. We're all lame and broken and lost people, stuck in our own sinful and selfish ways. And Jesus the King has come. He's come into our world and he's come to us and he said, I want to show you kindness. I want to show you kindness, not because we deserve it, not because there's anything in us that's worthy, but just out of the sheer mercy of God and the love of Jesus. He says, I want to show you kindness. And we find ourselves saying, who are we? Who are we that you should notice a dead dog like me? Because that's really what we are, just in our depravity, in our sin, just like a dead dog, like a dead animal. And yet Jesus welcomes us. Jesus the King welcomes us to his table and clothes us with garments of sons and daughters and sits us at his table to eat with him, dine with him. And as one writer says, the tablecloth of grace just covers over our brokenness. It's a beautiful image. The tablecloth of his grace covers over our brokenness so that we can eat with the king. That's the king that Jesus is. And you may just be in that place this morning of just really feeling your own brokenness just feeling completely unworthy, completely inadequate of God's love, just trapped in your own guilt and shame and condemnation and unworthiness. And you just need to know that Christ the King is moving towards you with love and he's inviting you to eat at his table today. He's inviting you to eat at his table in spite of yourself, in spite of your selfishness, in spite of our stubbornness and the way we persist in our own stupidity. He still says, I'm going to cover you with grace. I'm just going to shower you with mercy. I'm going to show you kindness. And so you're welcome to come to the table today because Jesus has invited you, because he's welcomed you there regardless of who you are, 
how far you've fallen, how lost you are, how long it's been since you reconnected with God, whatever it is that's holding you back, Jesus is welcoming you to his table this morning and embracing you as his precious son, his precious daughter. He is the king of all creation, and yet he stoops down to lift us up and seat us with him at the royal table. That's Christ our King. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.